HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at... 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at HRN. Katie's out this week, so I'm joined by our Program Manager, Hannah Forden. Happy Thursday. Hey, what's up? And Jordan Werner-Berry, producer, host of Modernist Breadcrumbs. Hey. Hey. And Matt is in the booth. Matt Patterson, our engineer. (laughs) Um, We have a very special guest host today. Um, you may know her if you listen to HRN. Her name is Sherry Bayer. She's the founder and president of Bayer Public Relations, a PR agency that specializes in the culinary and hospitality field, celebrating its 15th anniversary. Woo! Congratulations. Woo-hoo! Thank you so much. Sherry's also the host of All in the Industry. So Sherry, tell us about your show and how you got that started and what you love about doing radio. Wow. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. So much fun. So I started my show five years ago, almost five years ago. Uh, The concept is behind the scenes talents in the hospitality industry. The name all the industry, I guess, encompasses that. And I came up with it after doing PR for so many years and knowing lots of people in the industry that did different things than what I did, whether they designed restaurants or they did the cocktail program or the they, you know, different different areas of expertise, and I decided to do a show about those people. So um, I love doing the radio show. I love interviewing people. It's a lot of fun, and as a publicist, it's it's been cool to be on the other side. And now I get pitched, <laughs> and that's I'm still not completely used to it. But it's yeah, I'm, I'm on both sides of the fence now, and I love being part of Heritage Radio. And uh, yeah, I'm at a hundred and. 94 episodes which is like crazy that's awesome that happened what have been some of your highlights or favorite guests if you're if you're able to choose oh that's like that question where you can't choose you know your favorite your favorite or your favorite kid um I always I mean my 100th episode I had on Danny Meyer which was a huge honor and treat and that was 
just it was just really special. Uh, every I don't know every guest I have is it's it's always different, and I learn something about them, and I feel people come away and and find that it's it's fun. It's also educates a lot of people in in the in- industry about other other professions, and so people can can learn what what each other are doing more than just seeing each other at events sometimes and kind of knowing a little bit about each other but this it really dives more into their careers so and you predate all of the hrn team that's in this room and in the booth so like now i'm feeling old no just i mean it's not that hrn is that old yeah and um we're all like we're all pretty new at this so what do you think in the past five years what do you think of the changes and the new faces and all the ways that hrn's changed but also stayed the same we're still in the shipping container it's it's been great that there's so many more shows adding on and adding flavor to to the network. I mean, when I was I wasn't one of the first. I guess now almost five years in, I'm I'm one of the longest running. Uh, but I think the variety of content that we have that everyone shows a little different. I think it's it's just always cool to be here at Roberta's and be sitting here in the shipping containers the vibe of heritage radio is like nothing else and i think it's special to be out here and to be doing a live show too you know there are there are podcasts out there that are pre-recorded and uh they 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 sound so clean and perfect (laughs) and then i'm like well my show's a little more raw (laughs) (laughs) it's real it's real it's real and it's it's just it's it's been great and so I'm happy to be a part of this family and at happy hour. Thanks for being at happy hour. This is awesome. Yeah, thank um, you. So our our other guests in the, in the studio today, we have two of them. Um, one is Kevin Fink, who is the um, chef of Emmer and Rye in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. Um, and we're going to get to all of the exciting things you've been up to while you've been in town this week. You had a lot of great things going on. Um, so we're going to come back to that. And our second guest is Henry Glucroft. He is the owner of Henry's Wine and Spirit in Bushwick, Brooklyn, as well as a couple of restaurants. Thank you. Welcome. Very, very nice to be here as well. <laughs> um, Henry, I do want to start by asking you one question because um, you brought some bottles because you're a very kind person. Um, so tell us, what is the first wine we're sipping on right now? So right now we're drinking a light red, which is actually an assemblage of uh, many different grapes. I just got it today for the first time, but it's a producer I uh, really like called Lestignac, um, young couple in Bergerac in France. Um, and it's an assemblage of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Trebbiano, Cabernet Franc, Semillon, and uh, from a few different vintages, actually, and just uh, bottled uh, last June. So special, and it well, tastes really good. Yeah, it's quite interesting, but pretty clean. Nice. All right, so we're going to get back to all of our incredible guests in just a moment. Um, but first, as usual, we want to do a few announcements and headlines. So to kick off our announcements, um, Jordan's going to tell us about our co-ferment event that's coming up. And this is a good transition because Henry will be there joining us and selling bottles of all of the wonderful things that we're going to have to drink. So Co-Ferment is a special event coming up on Monday, November 5th, uh, right here in Bushwick, Brooklyn at our co-working building, 100 Bogart. It is a tasting and panel discussion about cider, wine, and beer that I'm leading along with Dan Pucci. And we're focusing on the ways that these seemingly different beverages overlap, both in production and farming, flavor, culture, language. Um, We've assembled a crazy cool panel of people to lead us through this wild path of natural fermentation. Um, That includes John from Black Duck Cidery, Derek Trowbridge from Old World Winery, uh, Lauren Grimm from Grimm Artisanal Ales, and our BFF Krista Scruggs of Zaffa Wines. Um, so we're going to do a tasting, kind of play with the differences and the similarities of all these different things and have a panel discussion. There'll be food by Samisa, coffee by our neighbors, Say Coffee. Who am I forgetting, Kat? I think that's everyone. We might have a couple of, if you feel like getting into making your own beer, wine, or cider, our friends at Brooklyn Brew Shop have kits for all of those. So we're hoping we're going to have a few of those available for maybe a raffle or something like that um and it's a very cool day because monday november 5th is the 
second and last day of the raw natural wine fair. And it's also the during the beginning of Cider Week NYC. So whether you love cider or wine or beer or food by Samisa and listening to people talk about all those things, come hang out with us. It's going to be it. nerdy. If the weather's nice, we're also going to be on the terrace at 100 Bogart. So be one of the first people to hang out there. Um, and as Jordan mentioned, um, it's on the second day of Raw Wine. And we want to give a shout out to Raw because uh, we're going to be helping them produce the Speaker's Corner, which is on both days, Sunday, November 4th and Monday, November 5th. They're going to do a series of panels and tastings with a lot of the really great producers that are coming to Brooklyn for that event. Um, you can find more information about that at rawwine.com. And speaking of fun things to do in Brooklyn, um, tickets are officially on sale for our second annual Winter in the Garden gala and holiday party. Last year, it was, I would say, the best holiday party of the season, and I think we're vying for that position this year as well. It's at the beautiful Palm House uh, in Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, which if you've never been, is like being in a glorious human greenhouse it's glass and it's amazing we're gonna have a taste around with 13 to 15 of our favorite chefs um we're gonna have signature cocktails from damon bolte and souther teague the host of the speakeasy and the one and only dave arnold host of cooking issues here on hrn there's gonna be a silent auction there's gonna be games and if you come you get to hang out with all of your favorite hrn hosts and of course us uh usually behind the scenes folks <laughs> on the admin side. So you can find tickets at Eventbrite. It is December 3rd and we hope to see you there. And Sherry, it's not on the same night as Les Dames this year. So Sherry's going to be Thank there. Thank you very much. I was there last year actually. That she I made did. it to both. Actually, I I chose <gasps> I, I I chose HRN. Well, we're taking we're don't we're not making you choose this yeah. year. Yeah, because taking the I mean off. I love I love Lay Dom and I am a yes. member, but I had had an event with them very <laughs> very close to it, so I w- didn't feel I was I I felt I missed out, but not as much, and because of the other event, but it was very special and it was a fantastic holiday party and i'm looking forward to this year thank you we are too all right so now we're going to do a few of uh headlines so let's cue our news music it's kind of scary all right if you've ever thought that ambiance and decor could make or break a restaurant experience then this week's episode of the food scene is for you michael harlan turkel sits down with the architect glenn coben to talk about his new book an architect's cookbook in it coben illustrates a life focused on making food look better through ambiance and decor He's a highly experienced architect who has worked on all types of restaurants, from those with Michelin stars to taco joints. He's even interpreted the visions of acclaimed chefs like Alex Stupak of Impeon and Gabriel Kreuter of his ep- eponymously named location. I think I butchered that, but they're both great restaurants, so. We forgive you. <laughs> and this week on Eat Your Words, Kathy Early um, sets out for Norway to talk with Nevada Berg. She's the author of the Norwegian cookbook North Wild Kitchen, and she writes about a the award-winning blog of the same name. Berg talks with Kathy about what makes Norwegian food unique and why it's important and fun to preserve age-old food traditions today. We're all about that. She also describes how she combines traditional Norwegian dishes with more modern foods, like with her ice cream flavored with ramagrat, which is a sour cream porridge. So that sounds super interesting. (laughs) Tune in to eat your words to hear that. And on this week's episode of The Line, Eli Sussman talks with talks barbecue with Matt Abdu, who's been on our show before. He's the chef and owner of two New York barbecue spots, Pig Beach in Brooklyn and Pig Bleaker in the Village. Eater recently called Pig Beach one of New York's essential barbecue spots, and the Times gave Pig Bleaker a strong one-star review. Abdu was previously the chef to cuisine of Del Posto, and he was in charge when the restaurant received a coveted four-star review from the New York Times. Abdu has also appeared on the Today Show and The Chew and HR and Happy Hour. Most importantly. Most yeah. most importantly. He brought us a lot of food. He was awesome. We love it when people feed us <laughs> and bring us beverages. It's the best. <laughs> and speaking of new shows, we're bringing you a new episode of Meet and Three tomorrow on Friday. Because fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote 
an entire episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. <laughs> We're going to answer the question, can you eat cheese rinds? And explore the world of yeasts and micro mycocultivation. So you'll be sure to check that out. And if you're into the raw wine festivities we're having, you will definitely like this episode because it's real stinky. Um, so make sure to subscribe to Meat and 3 wherever you listen to your podcasts. And those are our headlines. That's just a little taste of 35 shows that we have on the network every week. Uh, make sure you go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org and explore all of them. By the way, Modernist Breadcrumbs is now out. We have to mention that. Woo! It's back! Season two is here. It's here and it's yeasty. And we started <laughs> from the bottom. Now wheat here. Now wheat here. Uh, yeah, make sure you go listen to Modernist Breadcrumbs. Jordan's been working very hard on it and it's going to be so good all season long. All right. So now I want to turn back to our guests. And um, as you said, Kevin Fink is the chef at Emmer and Rye in Austin, Texas. And um, Sherry, I think you're the only person here who's had the honor of eating at his restaurant. Wow. I'm honored that I was able to eat at your restaurant. And I went back to my episodes to see what number it was. You go to episode 142, All in the Industry, <laughs> on Heritage Radio Network. You can hear about my solo dining experience at your restaurant. I've, I've listened to that. <laughs> but I, 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 I of hope course, you would like to refresh it. it. Yeah. I had an amazing, amazing meal there. And you took, you and your whole staff took wonderful care of me. And I would love to get back to Austin to go again. Well, we have a good reason for you to come back. Uh, so we just kind of announced our second larger restaurant concept, which is called Hestia. Uh, so for those of you that, um, you know, are kind of uh, mythology, uh, she's the goddess of the hearth. And so I think the idea for this is really a live fire concept that is based around a 20-foot kind of massive backdrop with like seven different cooking elements uh, that's built by this custom uh, Danish uh, master blacksmith, uh, Chris DeMont. And... The idea then, beyond even just live fire cooking, which is uh, really exciting and, and local sourcing, which is something that we're pretty fanatical about at what we do at Emmer, is to shift the service model on its head to find a way to bring cooks into the dining room and essentially take almost like the sushi counter service model or, or tasting menu model that you would find, um, but I'll extend it into a more traditional kind of service element with 92 seats. So... Rather than just say, okay, we have to have servers and bartenders and busboys and porters, uh, we kind of questioned who and why needs to be doing what parts of service and, and what elements of that create you know, better longevity of um, you know, happiness in their lives and being able to provide for themselves. And then also on the other side, just like interaction between um, diners and, and sometimes the people that like put the blood, sweat, and tears into it or are behind the scenes. <laughs> so I... Th- so it's kind of like a dim sub style service a little bit. Emmer and Rye is, yes. Emmer and Rye. Okay. Yeah. And are you going to do something similar? It's going to no, be... No, no. I, I think uh, Emmer and Rye is super fun, and we talk about the idea that there's so many interactions throughout your dinner experience that you end up, uh, hopefully, with almost more energy going into it. Everyone, I think, goes to dinner at a restaurant that they've heard about with a lot of energy, and then a lot of times you kind of end that, and you're, you're kind of exhausted because you've probably overeaten a little bit, and... And also, ultimately, like you're spent and you've kind of gone through the ride. And I think for us, the idea is to have so many different kind of moments of impact that you're constantly stimulated and your energy level continues to increase even when you're trying all these different things. So we do look at it almost like a musical in that. And I think it would be really easy for us to take that tried and true method, uh, for us at least, and and replicate that. But we're totally crazy, and so we don't want to do anything a second time. Uh, So it's, it's just totally starting from scratch. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I feel like a dim sum self-service puts a lot of pressure onto, you know, your back of house staff that they're probably not used to in previous jobs they've had. And I think a lot of people have tried to do something similar to that outside of a true dim sum restaurant. And it's really challenging. So how do you kind of work with your staff to make them feel comfortable coming out of the kitchen and being almost like in that performance space that front of house is pretty used to. Well, uh, I think what we do is we probably put so many other challenges in front of them that they can't even really focus on what that is. So we take sourcing locally to like a very much an extreme. I say it's 95%, but I think when most restaurants say that they 
are really mean, like it's probably like 70. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we buy salt from, you know, uh, some areas that are not in Texas, although we're trying to seek out pallets of, there's a big Texas salt mine there. That would be really nice for us to do. And black pepper. And then like on occasion, some of our cooking oils and, and, and butters, but that's pretty much it. Uh, so like, if you want spices in our food, like we'll take leek tops and ferment those and dry those. Or if we want to have capsaicin later, we'll have bought, you know, 50 to an extra hundred pounds of chilies throughout the season and we'll smoke them and we'll ferment them and we'll dry them and we'll freeze them to be able to carry those through. And if we want to have any of those flavors like vanilla, let's say we'll take parsnips and we'll sugar ferment them to be able to associate more like vanilla and compound to have that into it. Or we'll take koji and inoculate that on a lot of different things. I think a really good one is like our old chart bread to make uh, more aroma compounds that end up being a, almost like banana and nutty um, and obviously a lot more umami flavor to things. Um, and so when you have all of that going and like every day, it's just like really a push to get there. Uh, by the time service starts, like people are not nervous about talking or doing this. It's really just about kind of being proudful and happy and, and to explain kind of all the processes that people went through. So in talking about your menu, I do feel like I hear a lot of Noma influence. Sure. I think it was interesting. Uh, a friend of mine and a really talented chef, Gabe Arales, who also worked uh, at Noma, said, Noma doesn't teach you how to cook. They, they teach you kind of how to think about food in restaurants. And I think the influence from Noma the most at MRNRI is not in dishes or in, um, for sure, not in ingredients, but it's in this idea of kind of questioning why and how we use ingredients and, and understanding like the eatability of those items. Uh, and that's something that I for sure took from my time there. Are you from Texas originally? I'm from Arizona. So the Southwest, okay. I think, was a region that I was always really comfortable with and love those flavors. I'm always curious when I hear people that are, have been at Noma for a little while and then they, you know, they either know going in that they're going to take this back somewhere else, they're going to move somewhere else to cook eventually. When you were working at Noma, were you constantly thinking of like ingredients and things from back home and think about, oh, when I can apply kind of the things I'm learning here to where I'm from, how interesting will that be? So I, I was always working in Arizona, even when I was at Noma. So I came to Noma to stage. I worked mm -hmm. service for about two months and I was in the test kitchen for one month. And because I always knew it was a short term, it was something I was totally thinking of as well. However, I think in that environment, um, almost like what we talked about with Emmer, like you're so almost overwhelmed on a day-to-day -day that it's just getting done and almost decompressing after or, or looking back at it from your time. Because for instance, I would wake up at 4.30, like have a little muesli and yogurt, uh, FaceTime with my wife, take a 30-minute bike ride in, work from 6 a.m. till midnight with one break, you're running the entire time, take a 30-minute bike ride back, try and put myself to sleep by one to wake up at 4.30 every day again. Um, and I mean, you can see how taxing that is on people and they've shortened that time a little bit, but that's what it was back then. Have you been uh, back to eat since you worked there? Uh, I ate directly after my time there, but I have not been back uh, to eat. They were closed last time mm -hmm. I went back to Copenhagen. Sherry, you you were there recently for Mad. Did you get to go eat? I Noma? did. I got, I got in. That's a miracle. <laughs> I, I was there for the vegetable menu, the vegetable oh, wow. season, and it's it's at the new location. Right. It's the whole experience is just it's so special from the moment you pull up and you see the space, and it's just it's it's kind of a magical restaurant just by the service, the food, the the hospitality. It's yeah, I had a really wonderful time. Still never been. It's on my bucket list. Yeah. Well, it's now, <laughs> what did they move into? It's a game season now? Or it's... They Forest, right? Yeah. Like they, it's cool. They, they, now I'm like, I want to go back. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's our idea, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it's very cool that you, you had that experience of working there. I'm sure you did take away a lot. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's totally different. I mean, I worked there when they were number one in the world and also French Laundry when they were number one in the world. That's awesome. And they're Not totally bad. different restaurants <laughs> for very, very different things. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what Thomas Keller Restaurant Group does so well um, is about structure and expectations and finesse. Mm -hmm. And Noma almost throws that out the window where things are, of course, finesse, but it's just more about kind of understanding and and 
um, catching nature at its peaks versus French Laundry is more about finding a way to kind of showcase what the peak of a particular thing is and manipulating a little bit more. Um, so I want to turn to Henry now. Henry, have you have you been on HRN before, ever? Uh, only, like, when you invited, like, a week before. But I, I've come into Roberta's a ton, yeah. ton of times, so I've always seen this room from the other side, and I've always been curious. And maybe um, because of someone you featured or a particular topic, I listened to an episode here and there, but I have to confess, uh, I'm... It's just crazy because your shop is like three blocks from here. I know. It's pretty close. So how did you decide to start um, or to open a, 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 nat a natural wine store in Bushwick? It's not just any wine store. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I kind of came at it uh, as an entrepreneur. I had previously opened a couple businesses and was in the neighborhood for a few years and just knew that there was a need for a wine shop that wasn't a bulletproof place selling Yellowtail for $15 when I knew it wasn't hard to do better. So as soon as I s saw a situation where I was like, I mean, anybody could, could do better than what's there, I, I felt uh, the boost to kind of go through it and open the shop and over time uh, you know at first I was thinking more organic biodynamic and I realized there's even you know more to it and that there are commercial powers already exploiting the organic and biodynamic terms so it wasn't enough to just say I'm natural or organic or biodynamic and really trying to understand each producer and their livelihoods and what a few parts of sulfur could do for their livelihoods in certain situations and not, you know, kind of understand how to interpret each situation on a case-by-case -case basis. And it's been exciting to grow the wine shop to the number of SKUs we have now and just, you know, seeing the, the customers and how excited they are about the shop has, has brought me all the joy I could uh, wish for. And you also have a couple of restaurants in the neighborhood. Yeah, uh, cafe bar again was living nearby. Felt felt you know there's nowhere to get good coffee. Uh, had experience with alcohol. Going through the S liquor license process, felt like hey why not I can do this too. And then you know Petra, the latest uh, wine bar slash restaurant. Um, the landlord approached me and the space had a very epic feel for anybody who's been there. You just walk in and it's not just any other space. Um, so kind of got it, you know, just started doing that and now have my hands pretty full. And <laughs> when I hear Kevin talk about uh, his approach to the latest uh, restaurant about the kitchen going out, that's in my cafe bar. It's very much it's obviously on a quick service, more cafe level but it's really interesting to see you know bat both you know back of house front of house relations and how bringing in front of a uh, back of house more into the front of house can actually create a pretty strong formula so i'd be excited to see how how that works out um um and the the cafe bar is called sunrise sunset yes um and can you talk a little bit about the food there so it's kind of just this all-day place. Uh, you know, it was five years ago. Avocado toasts were becoming a thing. Uh, kind of jumped in on that. And just the grain bowl. Help, basically just thinking about, since it's not, it's not on a heavily trafficked area, it's a very neighborhood spot, thinking about how you could provide for the media area around and give them something that represents, you know, the neighborhood, their price points, the quality and styles they're expecting and not giving them something else, you know. Uh, you know, I feel like you can get a lot of good tacos in this neighborhood. So I'm skeptical of when a new place trying to do that, what they really bring to the neighborhood, whereas you might be able to find another creative way to give people food um, that's different than what they're finding immediately around. Mm -hmm. um, and then you do a lot of like fun tastings and events at Petra particularly. Yes. 
Do you have yeah. a, tues- a Tuesday tasting? Yes. I, I. It's been a Tuesday thing mostly. Uh, we've done a lot of blind bottle um, type tastings there just to make it a little bit more about what's in the glass rather than the bottle or producer um, and just, you know, create conversation around that. But we're fluctuating where we show a few bottles. It had initially started as a way for me to... Uh, share and drink some of the bottles I'm only getting six of just because they're quite limited and you want to share it with people and also keep one for yourself. So how do you do that? And trying to at the same time uh, create awareness with the wine shop customers to the new place, which isn't so far away. Mm-hmm. So, why, why do you think that's interesting for people to like blind taste these natural wines? Um, part of it is kind of like making it really about the wine and it's easy for any industry to become a pretentious one and sometimes wine can easily become a snobby or pretentious industry and sometimes if you set it up the right way just thinking about enjoying or not enjoying what's in your glass is the way to do that while still at the same time drinking special bottles. (laughs) Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about. We were talking about this in the office today about how so many natural wine labels are like skewing like kind of crazy and weird. And it's like who can have the strangest looking label. Um, Do you find that people come in the shop and are like judging the bottle based on the label? Um, Like it come like the there's the faces label that comes to mind. The yeah. The bright neon. Yeah. Uh the good Uga wines? Yes. Um, yeah, they definitely were able to create a really strong brand around a pretty high quality wine. And their, you know, Partita Creus has also created a very strong brand. So you can see how natural winemakers are doing that. I'd have to say that animals probably deserve a royalty from the wine industry because I think animals are what sell the most wine. Why do you think that is? I don't know. People love animals. Um, Okay, I just have to add a little anecdote because (laughs) I am a perfect example of someone who's a sucker for labels. So I like sometimes, you know, I'm shopping for wine and sometimes I'm in the mood to like have like an involved conversation. And sometimes I'm like feeling superficial and I just want to start drinking the wine. And so I go in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get one thing I know and then I'm going to try a new thing. So on Tuesday... I walk into my local wine shop and there's a bottle. I'm like, okay, this looks interesting. It's a young red wine in a clear bottle with a pop top. And there's a little goat on the label. (laughs) And I bought it and I was like, I hope this is good. And it was fucking awesome. Delicious. But yeah, I'll buy anything with a goat on it. Hannah does love goats though. I know exactly the one you're talking about, and I sell that wine. And it's, I, it's, really it's a good. great, it's a great wine. Really it really good. is a great wine. Yeah. Um, I think it's Jordy K. Spring Red from uh, Australia. That sounds great. Um, that is a good one. I also like classical labels, and there are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. Um, and sometimes when it's clear that they've tried too hard, you know, just wax top and over the top design, and the wine, you know. And wine industry professionals need to know how to drink past packaging. Um, I think retailers are a little bit more a victim to it sometimes. And, you know, if the price is right, the wine is made in a certain way, and the packaging is good, obviously I'm I'm like, oh, this is going to sell so well. Um, But at the same time, I don't want to be scared to buy horrible packaging Mm -hmm. wines if the wine's good. Do you have any, like, what's your number one or number two tip for people going into a wine shop that's unfamiliar to them and they're trying to navigate it? I'd say, first of all, the decision about what shop you go into is already the biggest decision you can make. There are shops that have built reputations around quality. And, you know, obviously there's a big variation in the wine you can find in these places. But if you go to the right place and... You know, you get a moment to speak with the staff and explain what you like. You know, they really should help you find a good one. Then, obviously, the back labels of importers. There's some importers that, you know, most of the time, if I know somebody likes a wine from Zev or, you know, Dresner or one of these importers, 
it's highly probable they'll end up liking another wine from that same importer just because they also are tasting and their palate is generally consistent or their approach is consistent. Uh, That's a really good tip. How many different importers or like major importers do you think are in your store? So if people could start like identifying the ones that they liked. When I started the last time I thought about the question, it was kind of in the, you know, 40 plus, but now I want to say I probably work with 60 plus vendors in a year. Just because there's a few people that like self-distribute, you look at like Black Duck um, and a few producers like that, and they're very interesting. They're local products a lot of times. Um, so a lot of too many people sometimes. <laughs> too many to keep straight. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we should take a quick break and we should try another glass of wine. Yes. See what we have coming up next. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. All right, welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. I'm grabbing a, I'm grabbing a glass of wine that Henry just poured. And uh, in just a second, he's going to finish pouring. and He's going to tell us what we're drinking. He said we're going to Sicily, so it's something from that part of the world. Um, so, yeah, this is the first time I uh, try this wine today, but I have seen, uh, don't, really don't know much other than it's an Arello Mescalese blend with, I think, a tiny bit of Caterado, which is a white grape. So we're drinking a red wine, Norello Mescalese is a red varietal. They're pretty high up on Mount Etna, around a thousand meters. And uh, it's a relatively natural, here's a glass, sir. Our engineer Matt has come in to get his pour. Priorities. <laughs> um, um, it's delicious. Yeah, these are all samples I kind of got today and I'm discovering, uh, but I've seen these uh, wines around. Uh, was excited. Of all these wines that you got as samples, do you imagine that you will carry all of these in your store? Or, to make it a more general question, of the wines that you sample on a daily <laughs> basis, how many do you end up <sighs> carrying in the store? It's hard to say. Some some days I end up you know, going to an industry tasting where I'm sampling 100 wines and I'll probably choose 5 out of those 100. Um, other times, an uh, importer, distributor, uh, representative uh, will come to the shop, will taste through eight wines, um, probably pick up one or two. Kind of depends. I generally try and avoid wasting anybody's time and not having people bring me wines where it's like, I already have 10 of this same wine in the same price. I'm not going to, I just can't get it. I, it might be a great wine. Um, there are a lot of great wines out there. Um, it's just, really hard for any shop to uh, truly have them all. Um, but I did pick up a couple cases of the first one we had because I th- love it. And I it's one of my, f- I love this producer and it's a really interesting. Uh, the color is extraordinary. Yeah, it's, it's got one of these very funky profiles, but at the same time, it's not flawed. It's, it's, it's drinking well, it, it has character and... Uh, it's a case of natural wine gone really right, in my opinion. Love, I love when a natural <laughs> wine goes really right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, Kevin, do you do you enjoy drinking wine, or are you more of a beer, spirits, c- cider? Don't forget about cider. Um, so, yeah, I definitely enjoy wine. Actually, interesting, in my career, I'm a level two som. I took ah. the 
course, and I did a lot of uh, kind of stewarding of wine programs earlier on. I had a one uh, list that was 2,000 SKUs at the time. <laughs> Uh, and took a lot of outdated Napa wines that we needed to like move through from like the late 70s and early 80s, um, which a lot of them were dead and a lot of them were really special and amazing. So just goes to kind of show you. I have to ask you something. Speaking of sommeliers, um, we were reading recently about the story of the master SOM exam that got uh, nullified for everyone except for one person. Um, what do you think about that? And it's, I mean, what a horrible thing to happen to all those people. It's an incredibly, incredibly challenging thing to work towards and then to have that taken away. But, you know, what do you think? Is it something that you necessarily have to have to have a really great career in wine? No, definitely not. Uh, and actually, it's funny because I think people talk about that all the time with like culinary school and chefs going to that and what certifications mean for them. Obviously, means significantly more in the wine world. They've done a really good job of building that up. And I think that if you have that certification, you're almost guaranteed to have a job in the wine industry for the rest of your life and probably a six-figure job and a lot of different avenues to that because you've proven that your knowledge is fantastic. But it's also something you have to keep up on. I mean, a great example is I, my palate is so diminished from where it was and my ability to blind taste and just knowledge of producers is much less because it's not something that I kind of am able to dedicate and keep that focus on. Um, but I can only imagine because I, I know a lot of people that have walked through that exam or studied for it for years, uh, how, um, just that would be heartbreaking. Um, also though, if they, uh, did, of course, cheat, which is why uh, mm -hmm. it was nullified. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it seems a bit uh, deserved in that. Right, um, Henry. What do you, what do you think as far as a Somali exam um, goes? I mean, in, I, th I think I think I, I, I agree. It's uh, you know, it's an it's an it's 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 an education. I think uh, there. There are probably certain types of there are people who are able to make the most of an education and don't necessarily want to work for themselves or learn as you go and kind of, you know, take a more traditional approach to their careers at times. And I feel like the SOM exam definitely uh gives that and at the same time it's a wealth of knowledge i mean it just forces you to learn extreme amounts about wine i don't necessarily think you need to know as much as the psalm exam wants you to to be in the wine industry but it definitely sets you up for success and you know that's a good point about it being like something that you have to keep up with like it's like a muscle especially the tasting portion of that if it's almost like an athletic skill. It's like you can't be an NBA player for forever. You know, you have to be practicing at that, and you will lose that ability to taste on that, like, intense level. Well, I, and now I make vinegars, and because of that, and, and I make wine, how I taste wine now has shifted so much because alcohol is something that I'm trying to eradicate in vinegars to finish them. Mm -hmm. And so high alcohol wines are, like, really off-putting to me now. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it's something that I seek out as a flaw in a, something that I produce way more often and taste way more often than, you know, wines in that way. We have some people for you to talk to about vinegar. <laughs> Two of our hosts have written vinegar books. Oh. Yes. I love ha that. Harry Rosenblum wrote Vinegar Revival and Michael Harlan Turkel wrote Acid Trip. I've heard of both of those books. Yeah, yes. for sure. And then Jeremy, who just came on a little while ago on uh, HRN, just uh, published a book on vinegar with Jonathan Sawyer. Came uh, out two days ago, I think. Jeremy Udansky? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is. on Japan mm -hmm. Eats. Oh, that makes sense. Um, vinegar's everywhere. Um, all right, so let's, let's play some trivia. It's time. Okay, so as we talked about a little bit, um, one of the sort of themes of the show was um, everyone's sort of relationship to Copenhagen. We felt like... That would be the best thing we could do. I don't know. Or lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> you, we either either have something to do with Copenhagen, tangentially, or you wish you did. Um, I just want to move somewhere where I can bike a lot. So that's fine. Um, the biking there is so 
fun. I want to go there just and to I bike. I got back to New York and I got in a city bike and I'm like, it's just not the same. <laughs> it's a little bit scarier. Much scarier. <laughs> and yeah, I still, I'm biking in the city, but it's like there's something joyful about biking in Copenhagen that just, yeah. Well, yeah. they have the little bike carts too. So like I sought those out immediately and we, I have a one-year-old and my wife and I, she was pregnant when we went over there to visit. And so we came back and we immediately were like, we need to have one of these. And it seemed like so accessible there. And then they're like $7,000. We're like, well, we can hold off for a little bit on these. We're, <laughs> oh, we're my think we're gosh. Need these. That's crazy. So it just doesn't convert over as like a thing that they produce here often. Well, speaking of MAD, that's how they that's how they signal the beginning of the MAD symposium every year. Renee Redzepi drives Dave Chang around on a <laughs> bike cart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's their tradition. Okay, so here's our Copenhagen trivia. All right, and everyone's on the same team. <laughs> Question number one. Oh. In 2000, engineers completed the 10-mile-long Orisund Bridge. It connects Copenhagen to what city? Oh. Can we use Google? <laughs> <laughs> it's radio. No one will ever It's got to be Sweden. It's uh, in Sweden. Stockholm. I've been uh, to the city, so I feel really bad. And, uh, my friend David Stockholm. lives there, and they have a really cool food hall. I'm telling you a bunch of things. Also, the diversity in Swedish food is much bigger. So interesting fun fact. Danish food, obviously, very singular in what they're doing. But if you go over to Sweden, there's a lot more ethnic food. Huh. Which Scandinavia has almost none, like zero. Uh, and then you go over to Sweden, and there's like a bunch of really cool like imports and stuff. And it's Malmo. It's Malmo. You got it. You talked yeah, yourself there. I like that strategy. All high fives for this. That's, that was a good tragedy. I was like, oh, wow. isn't that the name of I my house? I had it the whole time. <laughs> the whole time. That's good. All right, question number two. Copenhagen's Little Mermaid statue has been vandalized a number of times over the years and sometimes in creative ways. I know, sad, right? Um, which of these acts of vandalism has not happened to the Little Mermaid? <laughs> a, getting doused in red paint. B, getting a sex toy glued to its hand. C, getting de decapitated. These are like really morbid questions. Um, and D, getting coated in toilet paper, other no otherwise known as getting TP'd. Which one did not happen? Decapitated. decapitated. Or the toilet paper. Oh. Red. Sherry toilet was paper. right. The, the toilet the paper. Toilet paper? The, easiest one the, most, the most innocent yeah, one. Yeah, I feel like that's, maybe that's like an American like, thing. It is. It doesn't like translate over. So I went to Auburn University, and whenever we win a football game, we TP the trees downtown. Yeah. It's very American. Very American, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, it's a thing that we do. Okay. Number three. Um, Established in 1971 on an abandoned military base, the Copenhagen Commune Freetown Christian Christiania, Christiania, yeah. Christiania is known for its tolerance of cannabis. What is the nickname of the main street in Freetown? It was Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> is it? He's, accept he's accepting the answer, <laughs> but that's not... But it's not right. <laughs> um... um Think about a verb related to someone selling drugs. Slinging. Pusher, cool. pusher Street. Yeah. That's it. Nice. nice. Very nice. I, I mean, I feel good about it. I was about to say, like, well, I, you know, I, like, I worked a lot. I don't think I got that much into, like, Danish culture. And, and now I feel pretty it okay about it. Yeah. it. All right. Question number four. The museum at Copenhagen's Carlsberg Brewery houses the largest collection of unopened beer bottles in the world. How many bottles are in the collection? Oh, we'll do prices right rules. Seven. <laughs> Whoever's closest without going over. It's higher than seven. Five thousand. Okay. Any other guesses? Hundred thousand. Yep. Twenty thousand. Ninety-nine bottles of beer on the wall. Ninety-nine <laughs> bottles of beer. <laughs> You know, I only have one sound effect. How am I supposed to signal who got it? Right? Well, I'm going to say Jordan got it right, and you can oh. ding, ding, ding. It was 22,000. Oh. Wow, nice. Good. All right, question number five. Last question. In the mid-19th century, Georg Karstensen obtained a five-year charter to create... It was a beautiful pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you. I got Georg, right? Georg C., I'm going to call him his last name. Um, he obtained a five-year charter to create what institution by telling King Christian VIII that when people are amusing themselves, they do not think about politics. 
What institution did he build to keep people from thinking about politics? Ikea. <laughs> That's the neighbor in Sweden, Jordan. <laughs> they built the bridge to get to Sweden to go to Ikea. So Rose Gardens are the... the Very close. Can you yeah, like the, the Rose yes. Gardens? Yeah. Um, so in, in the mid-1800s, Georg, whatever his name is, obtained a five-year charter to create what institution? He got the charter by telling the king, Christian VIII, that when people are amusing themselves, they don't think about politics. So what did he build to amuse people? Are you talking, oh, are you talking I totally about Tivoli Gardens? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Tivoli Gardens. Wow. It's like the second oldest yeah. amusement park, I think, maybe in the world. What was the year on that again? Um, it was about 1840. Yeah. I think Disney was inspired by that, too. Absolutely, yeah. he was. He went there, and he wanted to recreate the merriment and um, the people that didn't care about politics. They were just happy and riding rides. Your use of the word amuse is, is what? Yes, thank you. That was the hint, and I got it the second time you read it. You know where yeah. I learned to write trivia questions? Cash Cab. They always had a little oh, wow. hint in the question. Yeah. Nice. I missed that show. All right. Well, thanks to all of our guests for being here. Kevin Fink, Henry Glucloft, our guest host, Sherry Bear. Thank you. So uh, fun. I want to come back. <laughs> anytime. You're welcome anytime. Um, my cohorts, Jordan Warner-Berry and Hannah Forden and our engineer, Matt Patterson. Thanks to everyone for being here. I'm Kat Johnson. And... We'll see you. We have a special show next week. We have the ladies from Charleston Wine and Food. Um, So tune in for that at Thursday at 5 p.m. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.